The Lord be with you. A reading of the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus came down with the twelve and stood on a stretch of level ground with a great crowd of his disciples and a large number of the people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. And raising his eyes towards his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who are now weeping, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude and insult you, and denounce your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and leap for joy on that day. Behold, your reward will be great in heaven, for their ancestors treated the prophets in the same way. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will grieve and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for their ancestors treated the false prophets in this way. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Live your best life. There's a phrase we hear a lot. It, supposedly, Oprah, go figure, it was Oprah, coined this term like years ago, 2005, when she made it a title of one of her books. If you take this phrase and if you Google it, you're going to get millions and millions of hits. There's all kinds of books and articles and videos and popular songs telling you to live your best life. Just yesterday morning, I got an email in my inbox. It was an advertisement for travel, and it said, the title was, Live Your Best Life in Miami. I was like, yes, please, right now. I mean, it's crazy. It's so terrible outside. I want to go to Miami. Live my best life. Well, you know, there are preachers out there kind of on the same bandwagon. Uh, they write books or they, they preach a message and teach a message of positive self-improvement, and this is then the path towards happiness. Live your best life. We are saturated with that message. Live a lifestyle that's going to make you happy. One article I read said, you know, the most important word in live your best life is your, you. It's all about you. It's entirely up to you. So make the adjustments and the improvements and have positive thinking and good attitudes and habits and behaviors, and you can live your best life. Well, like most lies, it's not completely false, right? It's a truth that we take and twist. No doubt there is an optimistic impulse in all of us, that sense of hope that says, you know, things are going to get better. Things are going to improve. There's a search for happiness in all of us that's very, very real. But you see, that's all planted in the human heart because God put it there to point us and turn us not to ourselves for happiness, but to point us towards Him. That's where the truth is twisted. So in Luke's account of the Beatitudes, Jesus teaches us today not to live our best life, but let's add the letter L, to live our blessed life. Blessed are you who are poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. Wait, what? How's that your best life or your blessed life? That sounds like the worst life, does it not? Right? 
And then Jesus gets even more ridiculous. He says, woe, which is a biblical word of warning. Woe, look out, woe to you who are rich and full and laughing and popular. What? I don't know about you, but I spend most of my life trying to be those things. That's what I want to have. I spend my life pursuing all that. See, that's the paradox of Christianity, which seems so ridiculous is actually true. And that's what throws a lot of people off. A lot of people come to religion or they come to Christianity because they're looking to improve their life. They're looking to have something take away their pain. But see, nowhere does Christianity promise that it's going to take away your suffering. What it does teach us is that God will take your suffering and use it for good. He'll work through your suffering. A couple of months ago when we were in Advent back in December, I had talked about this Greek word that's used here by Luke, blessed. It's makarios, and then it has an Old Testament antecedent to it in the Hebrew, ashrei. And sometimes you'll come across texts like when we were singing the psalm, Psalm 1, it, it sometimes it'll be translated something like happy or fortunate. But we've got to be careful because this is more than just a sensation or a feeling of, of happiness. This is a state of being. It's a condition that's then given to us by God because he shines his favor on us. And what I love about the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word ashray, is that it also at its root, root has the idea of go or walk. And see, there's, that's where it is because we're told to go and to walk and to follow Jesus, that this is the path of blessedness. That's where we get this blessed state that then brings us happiness and contentment and fulfillment and peace even when things are distressing in our lives. Peter Kreeft writes this, the bigger the empty space, the more it can be filled. Suffering creates an empty space, and God fills it. See, because if I'm rich, and I'm full, and I'm laughing, and I'm popular, (laughs) how much space do I have for God? I don't even need God. Life's good. And our entire culture then looks at the rich and the famous, the celebrities, the athletes, the successful business people, and we look at them and we say, that's the blessed life. That's what I want to have. That's what I'm striving for. Isn't it funny and ironic, though, that many times those are the same people whose lives are the, the biggest, most tragic train wrecks? But if I'm poor and hungry and weeping and hated then I'm going to be empty. And then I need to be filled by God, and I become totally dependent on Him. It draws me close to Him. And it's in that closeness, then, there's the blessedness. You see, the real blessing, sometimes we misunderstand what Jesus is saying. The real blessing is not the state of being poor and hungry and weeping and, and hated. Those conditions can make us more receptive Luke hints for us at where the real blessing lies, and it's just a tiny little detail, but it's super important. Before Jesus ever says anything, it says, Jesus raised his eyes to his disciples. There's the blessing. That Jesus doesn't ignore us. That he looks on us in the midst of our suffering. In fact, he even enters into our suffering. Think about it with me for a moment. Who is the poor one? Who's the hungry one? Who's the weeping one? Who's the hated one? It's actually Jesus. He's the one who's our God who made himself absolutely 
nothing. He took on all of our greatest human predicaments. He's the blessed one who totally relies on his Father. So now when Jesus looks on us, our God looks on us, he is also a fellow human, a fellow sufferer, a brother. And yet, he's not just a God who, you know, looks at us while we suffer, even joins us in our misery. I mean, that would, that certainly makes him sympathetic to us, but that doesn't really help, does it? Let's go to our second reading from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is there teaching us that Jesus is the crucified one, who's carried all of our sins, who's entered into the depths of our human suffering. He's experienced hell itself. But then Paul says, but if he's not risen, it's all lost. Everything is in vain. Christianity is not about a good religious teacher, a guru who lived 2,000 years ago to teach us religious truths. You know, kind of like Jesus, Gandhi, they're all kind of the same, right? No, everything, absolutely everything hangs on this one thing, all of Christianity. That in his death, Jesus put to death the old world of our sin, of our pain, of our suffering, of our death itself. But when he rose, he brought a new life and a new world and a new creation and a new hope. So if he's not risen from the dead, Paul says, then we are the most pitiable of all people. You know what? We are absolute idiots. If believing that, you know, the being poor and hungry and weeping and being hated, like that's a path towards blessing? Really? How stupid could we be? Oh, no. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then what are we doing? Get out of here. Go. Go live your life. Get ready for the Super Bowl. Have fun. Live your best life as long as you can. If you can, pursue you and your happiness and don't let anybody get in your way. It is survival of the fittest, baby. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Yeah, we die. And isn't it ironic that the same culture that says, live your best life, is also so deeply depressed and hopeless because deep down we all know it. We might get a few moments of happiness in this life, but it doesn't last. It's never enough, and then eventually it's over. We die. That's it. And this is why Christianity is such a paradox and why it takes the world and just flips it on its head. Because Jesus is risen from the dead. And as we will say during the whole Easter season and we respond, Christ is risen. Hallelujah! It's the risen one who lifts up his eyes and looks on us in our suffering. Now, his resurrection, though, again, don't just think this is some postponed kingdom, right? That the satisfaction and the laughter and the dancing for joy, that all comes later. You know, it is more than, oh, just hang on, you've got to wait for the next world, it's all going to get better then. No! I mean, yes, it will. Hang on, wait for it. But now, right now, Jesus, the risen one, breaks into our lives right now. The fullness of joy that will someday be ours actually breaks into our lives right now in the midst of our suffering and our heartache and our affliction. The future blasts into the present so that we can live our blessed life now. Let me put it this way. 
Have you ever known someone whose life's circumstances, maybe yours even right now, are just awful? Right? The tragedy, pain, sorrow. And it's not as if they don't feel it. I mean, they know the pain and the sorrow. It's there. You can't ignore it. But there's also something in them deeper and greater and stronger. Something that brings peace and calm and even joy in the midst of their suffering. That they have hope and they are actually even happy people. In his truly wonderful book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed by the Nazis, he writes this, The disciples of Jesus have only him. And with him they have nothing, literally nothing in the world. But they have everything with and through God. Or St. Augustine put it this way, If you have God, you have everything, even if you don't have anything else. And if you have everything else but you don't have God, you have nothing at all. And then listen to this, And the one who has God plus everything else doesn't have anything more than the one who has God alone. Simply put, they are rooted in something else, someone else. Despite the circumstances, they know the true source of blessedness. And this is what our psalm, the imagery that was in that psalm we sang, and and especially Jeremiah then in that first reading, this is the picture he paints for us. Cursed, he says, is the one who trusts in himself, whose whose hope is in somebody else that's going to make them happy, as if another person could do that. That person is like a shriveled, parched, scrubby little bush that can't produce any fruit. It's out there in the middle of nowhere, barely living in some sort of volcanic, salty wasteland. But blessed then is the person who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. That person is like a verdant tree that, when, that doesn't fear when the heat comes because the scorching heat always comes, doesn't it? It's the person who, in the inevitable droughts of life, shows no distress. Still growing. The leaves are green and the fruit is is blossoming. Because, Jeremiah says, that person's planted by the stream. And their roots, in the midst of the poverty and the hunger and the weeping and the hatred, those roots are stretched out to the waters, stretched out to the Lord, to the source of the blessedness the source of the life and the hope and the happiness. So I want to leave you with a picture. Years ago, we were on vacation in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Yeah, the Uppers up there, North Day, you know. And uh, my son Isaac and I, we were on a hike together, one of my favorite days of all of my life. And um, anyway, we came along this, this tree that is on a pedestal of rock all by itself right up above Lake Superior. And um, what had happened is it had once been a part of the entire cliff that's above Lake Superior. Again, absolutely beautiful. But a big portion of that cliff had eroded and crumbled and fallen into the lake. And yet its roots were still there. So if you, in the first picture, you can kind of see that it looks like a rope going across. Well, this is from the cliff up above. And you can see the roots have stretched across that gap that eroded. And that tree could still get its nutrients and its water all of these years, this, that actually happened years ago, and it still could survive. And I thought, man, this picture, what a great picture or image for life, isn't it? Because life has a way of eroding and giving way and deeply disappointing us. And yet nothing is lost. 
We stand alive and we stand strong when our roots are still stretched out to the source. So I want to give you a moment now to spend some time in prayer. You can look at this image and help, that, help you pray. But what I hope you can do is you can hear the voice of the risen Jesus speak to you today. Jesus speaking out to you and reaching out to you and saying, you know what, despite the circumstances of your life right now, the suffering, the heartache that you're experiencing, stretch out your roots to me, to the source of your life and your hope and your happiness. Live your blessed life now and forever.